And so as I mentioned, that's how Paul starts out the book of Philippians on that very note. He was a missionary, was he not? And he was, and he was writing to this church that had been established in Philippi. And he, he does so on such a joyous, joyous note. Now, Philippi was a Macedonian city in a Roman colony. It was located on a major Roman road in southern U Europe. It was a significant city. And Paul first visited there on his second missionary journey, actually. If you want to flip to Acts chapter 16, let's get, we'll just catch a little background. Acts chapter 16, we find Paul on his second journey being directed by God to go there. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to pick it up in verse 6 here. Where it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the regions of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They wanted to go south. They had come from, from the east, and they wanted to go south to Asia, but the Spirit of God says, no, not at this time. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, which was north, but the Spirit of God did not permit them. So they tried to go south. They tried to go north. There's only one way left to go, and they kept heading west. And so they passed by Mycenae, and they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so God intervenes in, in the ministry of Paul. He had no intention of going that far. Really, it's, it, some say this Macedonian call was the door that opened the gospel to Europe. And since many of us have European, are of European descent, and the gospel came across the oceans from that direction. We can be thankful that God opened the door to the gospel in this Macedonian call. And this church at Philippi was one of the first that was established there. The book of Philippians, if you flip back there, is a, is a joyful book. It's, it's also a book without any major corrections. You know, we find Paul correcting uh, the saints in, in 1 Corinthians, in the book of Galatians. But in the book of Philippians, it's really a book of fellowship, of, of, of his, his warm thoughts towards his church family to encourage them in their growth in Christ. There's one minor issue of, of two women that didn't get along. He addresses briefly in chapter 4. But other than that, he is, he is, a, is a book that he, in which he reflects on the joy of his fellow saints in Ephesus. You know, the book of Ephesians, which we studied a while back, is a book which keeps you seated in the heavenlies. That's all about our position in Christ and all that we have and all the blessings we have in Christ. The book in Philippians is your feet on the ground, what the love of Christ looks like in fellowship and in our growth. And that's really how this book begins. It begins with these three things that Paul expresses in his love for this church. He was thankful for them, he prayed for them, and he enjoyed fellowship with them. And so first of all, he says... I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, this isn't always common amongst believers, is it? To have this kind of gracious, loving spirit. And, and this thanks to God for them was not just a greeting, because he repeats this thought in verse 7, where he says, it's right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. He says, this is right. This is, this is how God works. This is the love of Christ shining through a believer to be so thankful for the fellow believers, the saints that were in Philippi. So it's more than just a greeting. In fact, the unifying factor was their work of the gospel. He mentions in verse 7, he, their, their participation in the work of Christ. 
In verse 8, he mentions how greatly I long for you in the affection of Jesus Christ. And so it was right, and it was motivated by the affection, the love of Christ. That's why it was the right thing. So this, what we're really saying, should be normal. What Paul's expressing here wasn't some hallmark greeting card, we say it, but we don't really mean it kind of, a, kind of greeting. He's saying what's in his heart. He's saying what is, the, what is really an expression of the affection of Jesus Christ, being thankful for other believers. And he mentions here, what I think is interesting, he says, every remembrance of you. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Either Paul had, had, had a selective memory, or he wasn't focusing on faults, was he? Because in every family, in every person, in every church, with our, there are people that are saved, but they're saved sinners. We are people that are flawed. We are imperfect. We are products of grace, and we're growing in grace and God is very patient with us, isn't he? And so Paul accepts them. He's thankful for them because they're accepted in Christ. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, we're accepted in the beloved one, just as we are. And what a wonderful concept to come to realize that when you trust Christ as your Savior, that God accepts you in Christ. Not because of who and what you are, but because he chose to love you. It is his choice and grace to love you and accept you. And Paul's expressing that same mentality here. Which means in order to enjoy the fellowship of a Christian church and a Christian family, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to put our best foot forward. We don't have to fear that someone might find out what I'm really like, that I have shortcomings, that I make mistakes, that I trip and fall, that I don't always walk with the Lord, I don't always trust the Lord. Instead, and within the love of Christ, we accept one another just where we're at in the Christian Lord, and we support each other, and that's what Paul's talking about here. This isn't expressed from an attitude of criticism or cynicism or scrutiny. He just thanked God for every remembrance of them, that God was at work with them. Even in their imperfections, God's at work with them. And in fact, in their imperfections, that's why we need each other. You know, if you were perfect, we wouldn't need fellowship. But the reason we're imperfect is why we need to bear one another up, to encourage one another in our faith in Christ. And so we don't accept each other based on our level of perfection or accomplishment or growth or how they fit our opinions and convictions and lifestyles. We accept each other because they're in Christ. And what a joyous fellowship that, that is to enjoy the unconditional love of Christ for one another. And I couldn't help but think of a few scripture references that nudge us along that path. Colossians 2, he mentions prayer, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's God's desire for the church family, to be knit together in love. And this is just theory, this is practice. And love is always expressed in, in uh, finding feet. It does it not. It finds action as we fellowship and live together in each other's lives. First uh, Peter 1, Peter mentions a few verses about this, but verses 22 and 23 says this, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It should be the normal thing, a fervent love amongst believers. In fact, we know it's one of the things the Lord Jesus says is going to cause the world to recognize that we have something different. If, 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 if the world does not see the love of Christ in the community of the saints and the joy they share together, then, they're not, then you are nothing more than another social club, another community club. This is a reality that God seeks to develop in us, and it's wonderful. We saw it in our videos. 
We saw it in, in the growth of the church in Brazil in just two years, the fellowship and the joy they enjoyed together. We saw it in the joy of the Pakistani believers that though they live in such harsh conditions, they could share the joy of Jesus when they, when they met together, when they were together. 1 Peter 4.8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And maybe that's what Paul was meaning when he says, Every remembrance of you, I'm thankful for what God is doing in your life. The next thing he mentions then, which makes sense to fall on the, in the heels, is always in every prayer of mine I make requests for you. He mentions frequent prayer. You know, and that's what missionaries ask for. You know, John sends out frequent letters and notices and continually asking prayer for making sense of his, elect his uh, electronic challenges, technical challenges in his ministry of translation. We saw it in John and Neil. We hear it everywhere we go. And yet we need to pray for one another in, in, in within the church family, do we not? The Bible is full of that encouragement to pray for others as we serve our Savior together. And it's really just family concern. You know, one of the joyous things of having a physical family that grow up in the Lord and be close is that you can let your guard down and share your concerns and your problems and your misunderstandings across the table and work them out and work through them because of love of family. Well, how much more real is that in the love of Christ? It's just family care and concern and compassion to pray for each other, support of the pursuit of will of God in our lives. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so Paul here is saying, don't just do what I do, do what I say. This is what God has. God says, be watchful with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints in every memory of them. And we're to make requests with joy. And so what do we pray for? Well, Paul prays for here, here, here for them in verse 9. He prays, as we'll get to this eventually, he prays that their love will grow in knowledge and discernment. He prays in verse 10 that they'll make good choices in approving what is excellent, and that they'll remain pure and without offense. He prays in verse 11 that they're filled with the fruits of righteousness and that they'll bring glory to God. He prays for their spiritual development. I don't see too much about praying for anybody's physical ailment, so there's a place for that. His concern was that they would love Christ, know Christ, grow in Christ, love his word, be fruitful and glorify God. And so that's how we had to pray for each other. That's our prayer for each other. You know, and that kind of makes us vulnerable, doesn't it? A little bit. Because sometimes we think that to have others pray for us means that I must have a problem. You might say to someone, say, I'm praying for you. And I think, well, where did I go wrong? What did I do? What's my need? We don't want to admit that we have a problem. And guess what? We all have a problem. It's called sin, the sin nature in our lives. It's called the tendency to be apathetic and lazy and the tendency to wander. It's the tendency to drift. There's, the, there's the, the possibility of temptations that can capture us and grab us and draw us away from Christ. There's a temptation to stay home from church when it's you know, much easier to uh, be occupied with whatever's in front of us. Whatever it is, we're all flawed. We all have things that stand in the way of our growth and development, and we need to have a spiritual concern for each other. And if somebody does miss church for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks in a row, or even one week or two, you wonder, 
Where's my brother and sister in Christ? Are they, are they experiencing a physical malady, a serious trial, or are they drifting from the Lord? That's you might think is invasive to each other's personal lives, but it's just a normal concern of a brother and sister in Christ. That's why God has established the family. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to restore sinning brothers. We're to be concerned for each other's spiritual growth. And so Paul makes these requests for them, and he does so with joy. Joy because he knows God is working. We see that in verse 6. We'll get to that next time. That God is at work in your life, but he does so with joy. Thankful for the response to God's word and God's work that is accomplished, he is accomplishing in them. The third thing, the third expression of his family love is for the Philippian saints is for their fellowship in the gospel in verse 5. The word fellowship, we know, is a word that means sharing in common. And Christians are encouraged to have fellowship, to fellowship. So what do we share in common? Well, we share a few things. We share our neighborhoods, our communities. Might share a few common interests, but that's not what this is talking about, is it? This is talking about sharing the love of life of Christ. Because he is the one who unites us. When Ephesians 4.3 tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, what he's referring to is the unity of the Spirit is the fact that the Spirit has placed us into one body. We're one body with these folks we saw on the screen. They were depicted as our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people we're going to spend eternity with, the ones that may be praying for us. And we share something that far supersedes community, physical family, organizations, common interest. We share Christ. He lives in us. And therefore, we should have a common purpose. The family of believers is united in Christ because we are in him and he is in us. And we need to live life in that perspective. In many places around this country and world, you'll find Christian cliques and churches. And those cliques revolve around common interests. And after church, you'll, have to, you'll hear talk about their common interests. Not in very few. Some often mention the teaching they learned that Sunday, the conviction God brought to their heart. Or maybe a struggle they need help or support or prayer for. You see, the Christian family is meant to live on that plane because our lives are Christ. We're, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's a life we live, and it's a life we share together. And sometimes we have to be willing to let our guard down, become a little humble and vulnerable in order to talk about the greatest thing that we have, the most important thing we have, and, it's the, and also the calling we have is to share in the life of Christ together. It's he that unites us in heart and in purpose. And so why would we think that we can have fellowship with those who are not Christian, by the way? Remember 2 Corinthians 6? That passage on personal separation says, what communion has light with darkness? We can have friendships, and sometimes good friendships. But hopefully those friendships are redemptive for the purpose of bringing them to Christ. But it's only the one another's in Scripture, the one another's that litter the landscape of the Bible that we are one with in Christ. They are the family, we are the family with whom we share life. And we share, therefore, from a biblical perspective with biblical objectives in our lives. And he mentions the one here. One aspect of sharing in the life of Christ was 
He says specifically your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he defines once again what that is later in verse 7. He says, when he says, I have you in my heart as much as both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all are partakers with me of grace. Some of your versions might say, actually, in verse 5, for your partakers, for partaking in the gospel. Some versions use that word, because that's what Paul's focused on. He's rejoicing that they were partaking in the work of the gospel. You know, and people can become Christians, and they can, they can call themselves disciples of Christ, but not, often, not always align themselves with the purpose of Christ, not really following Christ, not living every life, living life every day with the mentality of winning others to Christ, encouraging others in their faith in Christ. That is our calling. That is our primary vocation. That's what God has saved us for, to participate in the gospel. And Paul was thankful that they were partakers with him. And he mentions these interesting things. Remember, this was written from Roman prison. He says, you're in these chains. You're in this defense and confirmation of the gospel. When I stood up and defended the gospel, when I confirmed the truth, it cost me. It landed me in prison. And Paul here may have, may have in that short statement in mind all the different persecutions and, and oppositions and tortures and stonings and everything that he had gone through. He says, you're with me in this. You're part of this. And that's how intertwined and connected we are. And you might say, well, how do they partake with him? Well, maybe because they prayed for him. In fact, if you turn over to chapter 4, we'll see that this church identified with Paul repeatedly in supporting his work. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, that's the area that Philippi was, located in, when I departed from there, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent once and again for my necessities. Not that I desire a gift, but I seek fruit that will abound to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. What a wonderful testimony of this church. They had had the vision to, to and, I, and how did they do it? There was no TV, no internet, no, no telegrams. Somehow, wherever Paul traveled, they managed to find a way to support him, to once and again to help support his need. They were missionary-minded. They were gospel-minded, which probably indicates they were, a, they were pretty gospel-focused in their own community, but it extended beyond to support the work of the missionaries without asking, without having, been, having a guilt trip laid on them, they just sent out and supported his work. And he said, no other church did that. And that's why this is such an encouraging book, because family fellowship around the gospel was alive and well. And that's what unites believers. It's a life of Christ. But what unites them in activity is the ministry of Christ, because Jesus' heart is in the gospel, is it not? You know, the souls around us that are on their way to a crisis eternity are souls Christ died for. And those are the ones who Paul preached, and those are the ones who the ministry of the Philippian church supported. So they supported him in prayer. They supported him financially. In fact, they shared their pastor. Epaphroditus apparently was a pa the pastor, a pastor at least, or a leader in, a, in Philippi, and they had sent him to Rome to, to bring their latest gift. And Paul calls it here 
a tremendous sacrifice, sweet-smelling, well-pleasing to God. And that's because, not because they did everything just right in church, but because they're willing to give of themselves in support of the work of the gospel. And so we share the love of Christ for one another, but we also share the heart of Christ to reach the lost. That's his heart. That's the people he died for. When he left the earth, that's the one thing, thing he told his disciples, whether it was before he left this earth, is go and preach the gospel. You shall be my witnesses. You're going to carry on my work. And that's the heart of Christ. It's the heart he would develop in us. You see, it's quite a privilege to be united as a church family, as a Christian family, as a worldwide, in fact, since Pentecost and until the rapture family of believers. But we have a purpose while we're here. Not only to share the love of Christ with one another, to be thankful for one another, to pray for one another, to enjoy the unity of the Spirit and working together then for the cause of the gospel. That's why we're here. And churches around the world struggle to get people engaged in the work of the gospel. It's one thing to get people encourage people to come to church to be fed. Often it's another thing to get them to sacrifice. Because that's what this was here. I don't think, I think the implication here, if you compare scriptures, is this wasn't a rich church, but it was a sacrificing church that wanted to be part of the work of the gospel. And they gave what was acceptable and well-pleasing to God. Because that's the important thing, isn't it? Is that they did this as unto the Lord. So living out gospel purposes is expression of the heart of Christ within us together. And if you flip back to chapter 1, look at the end of the chapter. And I think here we find Paul's encouragement to them and desire for them as they continue to share in his sufferings for Christ. So in verse 27 of chapter 1, which we'll cover again at a later time, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he starts with their conduct, whether he's referring to individual Christian living or their fellowship as a church family, it should be worthy of the gospel. It should reflect the, the gospel of Christ, the love of Christ, the purposes of Christ. So that, going on, whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's his desire. And it's God's desire for each believer, every church where the gospel is preached, is that we enjoy the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we stand firmly together with one purpose, and that's to forward the gospel of Christ together. Verse 28, nothing, in no way terrified by your adversaries. In other words, encourage each other. Don't be terrified. You remember Paul's writing from prison. He's going to give them in between these passages. He's going to talk a little about, about his imprisonment. He says, but don't be terrified of the opposition. As the Pakistani believer said today, God has not forgotten us. God is with us. Don't be terrified. Stand for the truth of the gospel. He says, to them, it's a proof of perdition. They think that when you're not terrified, that you're not real. But Paul says, in reality, it's an evidence of salvation that comes from God. For it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake and so having the same conflict, the same struggles, the same opposition, the persecutions and challenges and the same sacrificial living, which he saw in me and here to be in there, share in that. And so he encourages them here as he begins on that note with our fellowship and the gospel and encourage them to continue to share 
and the work of forwarding the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these simple challenges this morning, Father, yet critical challenges in regards to the living out of our faith. Father, we are thankful that we have the example of Paul here in his love for the saints, his praying for the saints, and his thankfulness for the saints' participation in the gospel work. Father, help us to realize that this is your heart. This is your desire for your children. Father, we meet together to fellowship and enjoy each other, to grow together in love, Father, but we scatter to win the lost. And so, Father, we pray that you would equip us to that end today and apply the things we've learned today to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.